If there's one word that has been synonymous with the Trump presidency from day one, it's been scandal. In fact, now everyone who works in the White House has changed their ringtone to dun dun dun. <laughs> well, I don't no kidding. No kidding. I got the feeling that something right. It ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From middle Pacifica with Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI. On Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York on WLPP 102.9 FM. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950. We're also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the internets every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. All-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today uh, for what I hope will not be a thrilling action-packed adventure. <laughs> well, maybe thrilling, perhaps not action-packed. I'm hoping not. Uh, <laughs> it has been such a crazy week, frankly. Uh, two weeks. Crazy two weeks, uh, really, at this point at least uh, that I'm going to I'm hoping that to try to hit some stories today that we've had to put off repeatedly over the past week and a half. Uh, but but that are still very important, uh, you, you know, whether the president is crippled or not in what he can do policy wise himself with his executive actions and all of that, given his you know, the the current messes that he has created for himself that he is now dealing with, his executive agencies are still very much hard at work trying to do all sorts of damage to the country. For example, his Customs and Border Police are rounding up folks uh, at a record pace, reportedly. His EPA administrator is still trying to roll back pollution regulations, which, as Desi Doyen, hello, hello, reported on uh, on our latest Green News report. Uh, th- those those efforts are moving at, maybe moving ahead despite this huge number of comments that the EPA received via this regulations.gov website that they set up to ask people what regulations should be rolled back. That's what it was essentially what oh, they had set it up for. Flat right? out for that, yes. What would you like us to repeal? Right, exactly. And instead, what, what was the number? You, you said it was, it was like 73 it, to 1? Yes. Uh, I did not do the math yeah. on this, so I'm relying on somebody else's yeah. math. But the Washington Post, yeah, 73 to 1 was the uh, folks defending 
versus folks opposing uh, these regulations. People saying, no, we, we want those regulations yes. in place. We like clean water. We like clean air. Exactly. Uh, so so that's good. Regulations.gov. Also at the Interior Department, they're also using apparently regulations.gov as this effort moves forward to try to reverse national monument status that has been granted to more than 20, what is it, 2024, 20, 27? Um, it's, it's, it's like now. 30 now. Almost 30 now? Yeah. Uh, almost 30 national monuments that they're talking about reversing that were declared. This has never been done before that they've actually rolled back a national monument declared by a president. But they're looking at uh, about 30 national monuments from the three former presidents, Obama, George W. Bush, and Clinton, uh, places that they have protected with national monument status, Trump wants to roll them back. And uh, as we will discuss also momentarily with my guest today, um, at the Justice Department, uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions last week announced new policies for prosecutors to roll back the criminal justice and sentencing reform that was carried out by the Obama administration in what had been Hopefully still is, but what had certainly had been a growing bipartisan effort to do things like, you know, shutting down private prisons and to end our decades long policies of mass incarceration and otherwise enact long overdue criminal justice reform at the DOJ and in Congress. But the Trump administration is rolling all of that back as quickly as they can. We will speak to a former assistant district attorney about Jeff Sessions's new policies for prosecutors, um, which are quite disturbing. Uh, we'll talk about that uh, and, and much more shortly with him. But also, while I want to try to hit a few items today that we've we've had to put off over the past, like my guest today, to talk about this. <laughs> we have been putting off this guest day after day after day as news continues to break. So hopefully nothing breaks between now and the time we get to them. But um, I want to try to hit a few items today that we had put off because of that uh, over the past week. But, uh, well, as Al Pacino once said, Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. <laughs> yes, they do. I thought we could uh, move for the moment anyway, while Trump is on a plane heading out of the country today, uh, that we could uh, leave the Comey story behind for a bit. But uh, no, we can't. We've got another crazy report coming out of the White House just before airtime today regarding Trump's Oval Office meeting last week with the Russian foreign minister and ambassador. Uh, the day after he fired FBI Director Jim, Jim Comey and what seems to be another damning admission by the president himself. Um, but as I mentioned, this regulations.gov, Desi Doyen, oh. we ran short yesterday. Yes. Uh, short of time after our Green News report. And I wanted to make sure to hit this very quickly. That that regu regulations.gov um, regarding some of the reversals of these uh, national monuments. The government is is taking public comment on that. Again, as they did on regulations, now they're asking, hey, how do you feel about shutting down the national monuments? So you can go do that at regulations.gov. The, uh, the comment period, the public comment period lasts until July. Is it July 10? July 10th, yeah. yes. But... For one of these monuments, and one of them only, the Bears Ears National Monument in Utah, only for that one, for some reason, the public comment period ends 
in in about a week right. for that? It is purposely truncated. It was written into the executive order that Trump signed that only gave it this very limited amount of time for just this one specific Bears Ears National Monument. So I've put out a, uh, a request for comment to the Interior Department. They have not responded to me to answer why, why? it was so short, who decided it should be that short, who influenced that decision to make it so very short. And there's a big problem with this because yeah. a lot of the Native Americans Americans that live on reservations in the of the five tribes that worked so hard over so many years to get this mm-hmm. monument put into place many of the folks on those reservations don't have internet access. Mm-hmm. They live in remote areas where their mail won't even get to them in time for them to be even able to submit a written comment. So it's seemingly purposely truncated to make it as difficult as possible for the people who actually live there to be able to put in their own public comment about this. So it would be really helpful for them to have a lot of people jump in and say what they think about this particular national monument. And, and this was, we, ha- we had uh, those Native Americans there asking, we had some of them uh, from the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition uh, on the show last week to talk about this. Uh, they're very concerned because the Utah... Uh, congressional delegation, Orrin Hatch and and Mike Lee, I and think. And Jason Chaffetz. Jason Chaffetz. Uh, very much want to roll back Bears Ears to allow for uh, the extraction industry, fossil yeah. fuel industry, to pull coal and uh, oil and gas out and of that area. And mining as well. Uranium mining, copper mining, which all affect the uh, watersheds of the most beautiful places in the world and the people who live there. So you got until May 26. The members of those uh, tribes, by the way, uh, since they don't have uh, regular Internet access across a lot of Indian country, they want to they want a face to face meeting uh, to share their comments Orally, verbally, with yeah. the uh, with the uh, Department of uh, in the Interior, they're trying to get that because a lot of these elders, you know, they don't necessarily write things down; they share things uh, verbally, and they're trying to get that meeting. But you can speak up by going to regulations.gov, but you must do it quickly. Yes, before uh, May twenty six, and, and uh, tell reg- them. Yeah, yeah, it's regulations.gov, plural, ah, regulations.gov. The sooner you get in, the more personal your comment, uh, you know, expressing how you feel about these, you know, national monuments is really very helpful. Okay, as I meant, thank you for that. Uh, and I'm sorry we couldn't get to it yesterday. Uh, as I mentioned, Donald Trump is on a plane as we go to air here today, heading out, uh, out of the country for a nine days overseas uh, trip. And, of course, one of the first things that occurs to me is, uh, hey, let's uh, institute that travel ban now. <laughs> Shut the gates. Shut, keep them. Anyway, uh, he'll probably get back in. But, uh, um, you know, and uh, so I'm thinking it's a little quieter while he's on a plane, while he's flying overseas. How much damage can he cause for the next hour or two? We should be able to get in the stories. But, you know what, maybe I shouldn't ask that question, as <laughs> uh, I've, I've seen reports uh, today that now a second Nimitz-class aircraft carrier, the USS Ronald Reagan, is apparently steaming towards the Korean Peninsula. It's unclear if that uh, battle group is going to replace the USS Carl Vincent battle group, which is currently off the, uh, off the coast of North Korea, within shooting distance in any event of North Korea, or if it's going to uh, join the uh, Carl Vincent there. Well, we have two battleships for some reason, two aircraft carriers for some reason. In any event, uh, that remains a concern, particularly as Trump's approval ratings continue to plummet over the past few days in the wake of the Comey firing. 
Uh, and then we get this story today breaking from the New York Times just before airtime. <laughs> President Trump told Russian officials in the Oval Office this month that firing the FBI director James Comey had relieved, quote, great pressure on him, according to a document summarizing that meeting. Uh, he, he said, according to this document, which was read to The New York Times by an American official, quote, I just fired the head of the FBI. He was crazy. A real nut job. I faced great pressure because of Russia. That's taken off, Mr. Trump added. I'm not under investigation. This conversation calling Jim Comey a, uh, a nut job, crazy, a real nut job, that conversation was during a, a May 10 meeting. This was the day after he fired Comey. And the Times uh, notes that it reinforces the notion that Trump dismissed Comey primarily because of the Bureau's investigation into possible collusion between his campaign and Russian operatives. Mr. Trump said as much already in one televised interview last week, but the White House has offered changing justifications for that firing. The White House document that contained Trump's comments was based on notes taken from inside the Oval Office during that meeting. And it has been circulated as the official account of that meeting. One official uh, read quotations to the New York Times and a second official confirmed the broad outlines of the discussion. Neither of those officials are named. But Sean Spicer, the White House press secretary, did not dispute the account. Uh, in a statement, uh, he said that Comey had put unnecessary pressure on the president's ability to conduct diplomacy with Russia on matters such as Syria, Ukraine and the Islamic State. Comey did that. Uh, quote, this is from Spicer's statement, by grandstanding and politicizing the investigation into Russia's actions, James Comey created unnecessary pressure on our ability to engage and negotiate with Russia. Now, remember, James Comey did not start this uh, this investigation. This was started at various field offices of the FBI around the country. Eventually, as things began to come together, he began to oversee this more and more directly himself. But to blame Comey for this, um, you know, I don't know that Comey was grandstanding on anything here. Um, but to say that his removal relieves great pressure as Trump reportedly said, is, uh, well, it's obviously wrong, given what has happened since and the appointment of a special uh, counsel uh, and all of the attention over the past week. I, uh, you know, so he was wrong on that score. Um, and another piece of evidence, uh, along with Trump's own concession to NBC last week about this, that the firing was done in hopes of killing that investigation. And, and again, no matter what you think of that investigation, it is more evidence. This uh, report today is more evidence of obstruction of justice to try to impede that investigation in any way possible. Add to that the New York Times report on Tuesday that a contemporaneous internal memo was written by James Comey after a private one-on-one one -on -one meeting with the president in the Oval Office, finding that Comey was claiming that uh, Trump asked him to end the investigation into National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and his undisclosed payments from foreign countries. And it's hard to see 
how Trump's behavior can be characterized here as anything but attempts to shut down this investigation, which would be clearly obstruction of justice. Spicer's attempt uh, to repeat the assertion, he went on to say in his statement, he said the investigation would have continued and obviously the termination of Comey would not have ended it. Once again, however, the real story The real story is that our national security has been undermined by leaking of private and highly classified conversations. So this is, again, uh, the administration, this assertion that the real story here is national security being undermined by the leaking of private and highly classified conversations. This becomes more laughable by the day. The call, once again, as the movie trailer says, is coming from inside the House. <laughs> inside the White House, anyway. Comey's, Comey's memos, for one, in the case of that uh, uh, memo about his meeting with the president, that was not a classified memo. So leaking that is there's nothing wrong, nothing illegal about it. Uh, and then this report today apparently comes from one of Trump's own people. Who was, you know, this was written inside the Oval Office, uh, inside that meeting last week with the Russian foreign minister and the ambassador. This is not some deep state spook as far as I can tell. These are Trump's own people who apparently he can't police. The, the official in this in this nut job report was unnamed by The Times, but it was confirmed by a second person. It is not denied by Sean Spicer and... And it's confirmed yet again by a third unnamed official who the Times reports was, quote, briefed on the meeting, who explained uh, who explained the comments by justifying them. So he confirmed these reports by justifying them as a negotiating tactic by the president in which I guess Trump was hoping to play the Russians as uh, fools. As idiots, well, good luck with that, Mr. President. This uh, third government official, according to The Times, was briefed on the meeting, defended the president, saying Trump was using a negotiating tactic when he told Foreign Minister Lavrov about the pressure that he was under. The idea, the official suggested, was to create a sense of obligation with Russian officials and to coax concessions out of Lavrov on Syria, Ukraine, and other issues by saying that Russian meddling in last year's election had created enormous political problems for Mr. Trump, according to The New York Times. So if The Times report is accurate on that third official, it would seem to be that the White House or someone close to it essentially is confirming their belief that Russia did meddle in last year's elections. Now, as far as I know, the White House has not publicly confirmed that previously, and I don't know if they are doing so specifically with this, with this unnamed official or not, Um, but it's interesting because you'll recall yesterday during uh, Trump's joint press conference with the president of Colombia, this was actually on Thursday, Trump seemed to be, for the first time, And not hearing a lot of people talk about this, but he seemed to be, if you listen closely to his remarks, uh, he seems to be for the first time distancing himself from his campaign associates, essentially saying, well, you know, he can't speak for them. But for his part, he had nothing to do with Russia 
during the campaign. Do we have that? The entire thing has been a witch hunt, and uh, there is no collusion between certainly myself and my campaign. But I can always speak for myself and the Russians. Zero. So he's saying I, I, I can... He says, I can always speak for myself. But I think what he was saying was, I can only speak for myself. Right. Uh, that there's, uh, you know, that specifically, he can't, you know, the other ones, maybe that he's going to throw them under the bus. But for himself, he had nothing to do with Russia during the campaign. But what he has said is that he has been saying now for months, and the administration has been saying for months, there has been no, there was no coordination, no collusion whatsoever between anyone in the campaign and Russia. And we'll find out if that turns out to be true or not when it comes to, uh, you know, the election itself. But I think it's notable that Trump is saying, uh, yeah, maybe I can't I can't speak for everyone else. But yeah. for me, I didn't do it. And that's the first time he has made that distinction. That's a big shift in language. It is. Uh, so I just want to sort of point that out as he uh, as this uh, story, the nut job story, I guess we'll call it. I heard Comey uh, described as many things, but as a uh, crazy and a nut job, a real nut job. Uh, OK, uh, well, that's the president's opinion of Jim Comey. All right. Uh, very quickly here. Earlier this month, um, AP's Michael Kunzelman asked, uh, is 18 years in prison without the possibility of parole too harsh for a man arrested with 18 grams of marijuana. Well, apparently the Louisiana Supreme Court's chief justice thinks so, and she has blasted her colleagues for upholding that punishment. 18 years in prison. In a withering dissent, Chief Justice Burnett Johnson called it outrageous and ridiculous that the state's highest court affirmed the lengthy prison sentence for such a small amount of marijuana. That's enough for about 18 marijuana cigarettes. 18 years in prison. One year for each for each joint, basically. A jury convicted Gary Howard of marijuana possession with intent to distribute, and a judge sentenced him at, as a, a habitual offender in 2014. Uh, she wrote, the judge wrote, the uh, chief justice here in her dissent said, as a practical matter, in light of the inconsequential amount of marijuana found, imprisoning the defendant for this extreme length of time at a cost of about $23,000 per year, costing our state over $400,000 in total, provides little societal value and only serves to further burden our financially strapped state and its taxpayers, she wrote in the dissent. The decision comes as state lawmakers in Louisiana are considering an overhaul of criminal sentencing laws aimed at redu reducing the state's highest in the nation incarceration rate. Bills that would limit penalties under the state's habitual offender law, the one that uh, this guy uh, Howard was charged with, are among the package of proposed reforms now moving through the state assembly. Rob Smith, the director of Harvard's law school, uh, uh, Harvard Law School's Fair Punishment Project, said, quote, Louisiana law authorizes these draconian sentences that would embarrass its other southern neighbors. Police apparently found the drugs in five baggies when they arrested Howard. Chief Justice Johnson notes, however, that a prosecution expert conceded the marijuana could have been for Howard's own personal uh, personal use. Legally, she wrote, the state proved nothing more 
than simple possession of marijuana in this case. Johnson speculated that authorities overreacted because police found a firearm in a bedroom closet during Howard's arrest. He was uh, subsequently acquitted of a weapons charge, but then he was slapped with 18 years for eight joints. But even as the uh, Louisiana state legislature considers new sentencing guidelines, joining dozens of other state governments who, who have done similarly in recent years, and as the effort by the Obama administration to roll back minimum sentencing requirements at the federal level in recent years, as all of that at the same time has been now rolled back by the Trump administration, who is now going in the opposite direction, um, at the same time, crime has been plummeting. So, you know, why do we have these draconian uh, sentencing laws? Well, we're going to discuss all of that and more, and specifically what the Trump administration is doing, what Attorney General Jeff Sessions is doing to roll back what had been substantive progress in uh, a lot of states across the country and at the federal level. That story is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Late last week, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced that he is rolling back Obama-era Justice Department uh, policies on charging and sentencing guidelines, instructing federal prosecutors to charge defendants with the most serious crime possible. Writing in a memo sent out on Thursday, Sessions wrote... It is a core principle that prosecutors should charge and pursue the most serious, readily provable offense. This policy, he said, affirms our responsibility to enforce the law, is moral and just, and produces consistency. The memo marks a dramatically different approach to drug-related offenses than the one taken under former Barack Obama's Attorney General Eric Holder, who had ordered federal prosecutors back in 2013 to refrain from charging defendants with certain offenses that could result in long, mandatory minimum sentences. Sessions writes, This policy fully utilizes the tools Congress has given us, by definition, the most serious offenses are those that carry the most substantial guideline sentence, including mandatory minimum sentences. Sessions' memo marks the administration's first major criminal justice effort to crack down on drug crime, a promise touted by Donald Trump on the campaign trail as he billed himself as the law and order candidate. Oh, I remember that. And he often railed against what he dubbed to be anti-law enforcement policies by the Obama administration. But it's not just Democrats this time who are opposing the Trump administration. Kentucky's Republican U.S. Senator Rand Paul, for instance, wrote a recent op-ed 
uh, in response to Sessions, arguing that reversing Obama-era guidelines on criminal charges and sentencing would, quote, accentuate the injustice in our criminal justice system. We should be treating our nation's drug epidemic for what it is, a public health crisis, writes the senator, not an excuse to send people to prison and turn a mistake into a tragedy. This isn't about legalizing drugs, he says. It is about making the punishment more fitting and not more ruining to people's lives. Each case should be judged on its own merits, he said. Mandatory minimum sentences prevent this from happening. As a new report on Fed, on the federal agenda to reduce mass incarceration out this week from the Brennan Center for Justice's Ames Grauert, Natasha Kami, and Inamai Chatiar explains, the United States has less than 5% of the world's population, but nearly one quarter of its prisoners. Mass incarceration contributes significantly to the American poverty rate, they write. Conservatives, progressives, and law enforcement leaders now agree that the country must reduce its prison population and that it can do so without jeopardizing public safety. Well, someone needs to tell the attorney general, apparently. Uh, they go on to write that in the last decade, 27 states have led the way, cutting crime and imprisonment together. Of course, because 87 percent of prisoners are housed in, in state facilities, changes to state and local law are necessary. But... They write, history proves that decisions made in Washington, D.C. affect the entire criminal justice system for better or for worse. So does Attorney General Jeff Sessions' uh, new Trump agenda for uh, fighting crime threaten a lot of bipartisan momentum at the state level as well as the uh, as the federal level? Who's got this one right? Is it Trump's Republican AG or Kentucky's Republican Senator Rand Paul? Or is it the bipartisan efforts at the state level? Or are they all missing something? Here to add some light, hopefully, to all of this, uh, no pressure, is Ames Grauert. He's the co-author of, of that new report from the Brennan Center for Justice, A Federal Agenda to Reduce Mass Incarceration. He's the John L. New Justice Counsel in the Brennan Center's Justice Program, where he works to develop an understanding of the cost of America's criminal justice system to defendants, to inmates, and to the nation as a whole. Previously, he served as the assistant district attorney for appeals in the Nassau County, New York District Attorney's Office. And uh, before entering public service, he represented criminal defendants pro bono in state and federal post-conviction litigation. Ames Grauert, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hi, thanks so much for having me today. Really pleased to have you, Ames, because uh, I've been trying to figure out just what the hell uh, the Trump administration okay. is thinking, although that's become a full-time job, I, I'm afraid, these days. Uh, the criminal justice uh, reform, Ames, seems to be one of the very few areas in which there has been a bipartisan consensus that has been growing in regard to reducing uh, sentencing uh, and our absurdly large prison size and, and frankly, finding a bit more compassionate and effective way of dealing with at least nonviolent drug-related offenses. So I, I want to talk to you about how to do that in a bit as your uh, report details. But is it clear that uh, Sessions' new agenda here would be a step backwards from the momentum of the previous administration? That's absolutely right. Last year, we, we had some hope that there actually might be 
um, federal sentencing reform passed for the first time in seven years or so. Um, there was a bipartisan bill called the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act. Uh, the sponsors were a couple of the usual liberal suspects, um, mm-hmm. Dick, Senator Dick Durbin, but it was actually spearheaded by Senator Chuck Grassley, who's uh, a, a very conservative member of the Senate and um, actually helped push through Attorney General Jeff Sessions' uh, confirmation of Attorney General. Mm. Uh, so we were, we were hoping that what we would see is um, continued momentum between reform-minded conservatives and progressives. Uh, what's, what's definitely broken some of that momentum is the election of President Donald Trump uh, and his nomination and confirmation of one of the very few anti-reform Republicans as Attorney General. Of course, that's Jeff Sessions. Mm. Uh, Sessions is actually one of the people, one of the relatively few Republican senators who opposed the bill and contributed to uh, Senator McConnell um, not actually bringing it to the floor, where we think it probably would have passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. Uh, it was Sessions, Cotton, and, uh, and a relatively small cadre of other senators who said, look, you can't push this in election year, and blocked it. Um, it's disappointing to say the least, but we're, we're seeing, some, seeing some signs that um, some conservatives, Rand Paul included, who you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, Mike Lee, and a few others might, uh, might not take this new, um, this new policy out of the Justice Department lying down. They've released statements criticizing it, and hopefully they're willing to go a little beyond criticism. You say Sessions was one of the very few Republican senators, so we really had... Uh, uh, there are actually, we still do, I suppose, have a majority of Republican senators who are in favor of actually uh, uh, s- at least sentencing reform in uh, in the Senate. I think that's right. I think it would have been really interesting to see this come to a full vote. But when you have um, front and center Republican leadership like Chuck Grassley, um, not just being willing to vote for a sentencing reform bill, but actually pushing it through his committee. I think yeah. that says a lot about where the mainstream of Republican thought is, and that, that mainstream of thought, and whether, whether you come to it as a conservative from a, a moral angle or religious angle or simply a budgetary common sense angle, there's a lot of Republicans who are willing to say that uh, criminal justice reform is the imperative for the country. It, it, uh, it, it, it's shocking that Sessions was not one of them. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, a lot of uh, shocking things uh, these days, it, it seems. Uh, if you could explain, Ames... <laughs> Uh, for those not familiar with that term, a mandatory minimum sentencing, sure. uh, can you explain what they are, how they have affected our uh, mass incarceration rate over, I guess, the past uh, 25 or 30 years, and, and frankly, why we even have those laws in the first place? Yes, absolutely. So it's, it's, uh, when, you, when, you have a, when you have a case, uh, as a prosecutor of the case, uh, you make an arrest, you have a, you're building a case against the defendant, and then you have to decide what you're going to charge them with. Uh, if, you, if you decide to seek a certain type of penalty, or a certain type of, um, if you charge a certain type of crime, sometimes that'll trigger mm-hmm. uh, a requirement that the judge can't impose a sentence any lower than a certain amount, and that's a mandatory minimum. So if you, uh, in New York State, for example, these, these exist at both the state and federal level, but mm-hmm. they're a little harsher at the federal level. Um, if you charge a certain count of murder, you can't, you can't ask the judge to impose a sentence of less than 15 years or the sentence will actually be unlawful. Uh, similarly, if you, if you seek uh, a certain type of, if you charge a certain type of drug crime, a certain type of weapon crime, uh, in federal court, the judge will be obligated to impose a prison sentence of no less than five years, ten years, etc. And those add up very quickly. Um, so the problem is that when you have mandatory minimums like these and when you have uh, an order like the one Sessions just put out last week, preventing prosecutors from deciding how they're going to charge a case, uh, it takes a lot of the discretion out of the hands of prosecutors. So rather than um, making sure that they, who know the case best of all, 
uh, are able to help the judge fit the punishment to the crime. Uh, you have prosecutors with their hands tied, uh, required to seek a draconian sentence that they themselves and that judges also may not feel is actually called for. So originally with these minimum mandatory minimum sentencing, we... We, we are essentially taking away the discretion from the judge who has actually overseen the trial of facts in these cases, who has come to know, uh, at least to some extent, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the person who has been charged and so forth. We've taken away their discretion. And now, if I understand it correctly, and now you're saying that uh, Sessions is essentially taking away the discretion from the prosecutors as well. Does his... Uh, does his memo have the, the the force of law, so to speak? Do uh, do U.S. attorneys have the ability to uh, ignore that and bring whatever charges they see fit, rather than the most extreme uh, charge, as as Sessions seems to be calling for? So it's it's not necessarily a rule of law, but I would think of it as a very firm memo from your boss that you ignore at your peril if you're a U.S. attorney. Right. Okay. And. <laughs> uh, and uh, in press briefing sessions, and as his spokespeople have, have sort of defended it, saying, look, we're not actually taking discretion away from U.S. attorneys. If you look at the text of the memo, it says that if you want to deviate from the harshest punishment available, uh, just ask the Justice Department or just ask your boss, the U.S. attorney or the attorney general, uh, if you're allowed to deviate. And, and we might say yes. And I think that really depends on how much trust you're willing to vest in Jeff Sessions about how he's going to wield that power mm -hmm. uh, and how much trust you're willing to vest in the... U.S. attorneys, um, none of which have been confirmed by the Senate so far. I, I think he's trying to send a message that uh, there's discretion available in theory, but I profoundly doubt that there's going to be discretion available in fact. Sessions has made no secret that he thinks that uh, we have an under-incarceration problem. I think that quote is actually Senator Tom Cotton, but Sessions is pretty clear that he believes the same thing. Uh, so I, I just very uh, we have an under that, an under incarceration problem session. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a bracing quote. Uh, I, I I think it was Tom Cotton. I um, some U.S. senator gave a speech against the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act, saying uh, these liberals have it all wrong. We don't have an under incarceration. We don't we don't have an over incarceration problem. We have an under incarceration oh, problem. Good lord. Good, <laughs> good lord. Uh, yeah, that that was my reaction too. Uh, and then that would be if if that if that was correct that would be Tom Cotton uh, senator from uh, Arkansas as i recall I believe so okay. uh, it, it was it was one of the few republican senators who opposed the bill how how does uh, you talk about this in your report but uh, how does uh, federal uh, funding and the general agenda that is set by the by the president and by the uh, department of Ge the the US uh, attorney general how does that lead to uh, more mass incarceration, even at the state level. In other words, how does that? How do the federal laws and sentencing guidelines affect this? The the way states proceed in these matters. Sure. So that, that's a good question. It's one of the things we work on a lot here at the Brennan Center. Uh, there, there's a feeling among a lot of the community that advocates for criminal justice reform that if you want to solve this problem, you have to start at the state and local level. And I don't, for a minute, want to suggest that that's not important. If you have more reform-oriented prosecutors, one of whom is running for election in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. uh, if you have um, judges and state governments that are willing to embrace criminal justice reform, um, that does a lot of good. But the one thing we learned uh, from the last 30 years or so is that the federal government's power of the purse and the sort of tone set in Washington have a lot of, they carry a lot of weight at the state level. So if you have an attorney general saying, look, we need to send more people to jail for longer, um, you, you shouldn't think for a minute that people in states, uh, people running for DA, 
people running for the governor's house uh, won't listen to that and take their cues from that. Mm. Um, the, the other example is, you'll remember there's a lot of talk about the 1994 crime bill on the campaign trail mm-hmm. and to what degree Hillary Clinton was involved, Bill Clinton was involved. Right. Um, that, that bill, it was, a, it was a bill passed by, the, by, by Congress that sent money to the states saying, uh, if you build more prisons, uh, if you pass laws that send more people to prison for longer, we'll reimburse you, here's all this money. And there's a lot of evidence that states, they, they didn't do this on their own. They took their cue right from Washington. They knew they would get paid back for it, so they implemented those very policies. So uh, the way we look at the system is, is you shouldn't neglect the state and local level, but if you can harness that power of the purse for good and um, maybe have D.C. pass laws that would give money to states to enact good policies, not draconian ones, uh, you could you could make a lot of change uh having a sort of force multiplier effect across the country. The um, the previous administration had, uh, I think it was just last year, as they were getting ready to uh, leave office, had uh, called for shutting down, at, at least at the federal level, shutting down these private uh, for-profit prisons. In fact, I think that was uh, a memo issued by the now-famous Sally Yates, um, <laughs> who no one knew at the time, but we know now. Um, has the uh, Trump administration actually uh, come out to reverse that uh, that policy to end the uh, private for-profit prison system, at least at the federal level? Yes, they they have. And just a word on Sally Yates. In, in the criminal justice community, we, we like to say we liked Sally Yates before it was cool. She, <laughs> exactly. she wrote a lot of good, necessary reform to the Justice Department. Uh, right. One of those was a real focus on rehabilitation, a real focus on uh, prisons that would help people, you know, spend their time behind bars well, so they'd be equipped to, you know, start a job and get their life back in order when they got out of prison. So one of the things that she did um, was she cut off, um, uh, she she directed the Justice Department to start winding down its use of private prisons. Right. Uh, one key note: they would have still continued to use it for immigration detention, which is not great. Right. Uh, but they wouldn't have used it for people accused or people convicted of committing federal crimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sessions rescinded that in one of his uh, very early in his tenure with an ominous declaration that it was needed to meet the quote future needs of the federal correctional system. So mm. we all had a pretty good idea of what he wow. meant, and the the order last week um, directing more and longer prison sentences was pretty much what we expected as a result. Yeah, that 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 is ominous. Uh, you're uh, <laughs> yeah. Future needs. Uh, your your new report at the uh, Brennan Center also cites uh, a new poll from the Charles Koch Institute. Let me repeat that: the Charles Koch Institute, uh, finding that 81 percent of Trump voters believe criminal justice reform is very important, or at least somewhat important, as an issue. So, is this an issue in which uh, his own voters, Trump's own voters? seem to disagree with Trump's own policies on, on this? Yeah, and actually I think that's, that's a dynamic we're hoping to see play out more. Um, another, another interesting finding from that poll was that fully half of Trump voters knew someone who had been to prison. Mm. So these aren't people who are just sort of judging the, the problem of mass incarceration in the abstract. They're saying, uh, we've seen how the justice system affects um, my friends or relatives, and we think it doesn't work. Um, so I, a lot of Trump supporters, uh, including Chris Christie, uh, including Mike Pence to a certain degree, um, uh, all, all embrace criminal justice reform, and, and many of his funders as well, including um, 
uh, I, I don't actually, I don't actually remember if that included the the Koch foundations, but mm-hmm. um, that's just a sign of how deep the interest in criminal justice reform runs on the right. Um, there was also there's an interesting report in uh, I think it was Axios over the weekend that Sessions wasn't too thrilled with uh, Attorney General Sessions' charging re- charging directive. Um, well, I, who, I think who, who wasn't who wasn't uh, thrilled with? Uh, Trump, the president. Oh, that Trump wasn't uh, thrilled with Sessions' uh, directive. Okay, it's one of those. It's one of those reports that you just see uh, reported in one source, and there's no name attached to it. So I can't really judge how credible that is. But it was it was reported a couple times. So if that materializes, it'd be it'll be interesting to see Mm -hmm. um, how and what Trump does in response to this. Uh, it might be a sign that he knows that his voters are are not with the attorney general on this. Well, that would be good, and we know that uh, <laughs> Trump is is good at firing people. So uh, just to keep that in mind, he, now he has said that uh, Trump has said that crime is out of control. Of course, he he famously uh, referred to you know American carnage in his inaugural right. address. Uh, but but crime nationally has been plummeting for decades. He seems to be referring to, I guess, to big cities. But even there, most big cities, as I understand it, are seeing crime falling. So when he says it's out of control, I know you wrote in a, a Washington Post op-ed recently, Ames Grauert, that fear sells. Is that what this is about? Is 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 what what is the president actually talking about when he talks about the crime being out of control? I think it definitely is the notion that fear sells. He he and he and Sessions need something to convince people that uh, there's a need to embrace these draconian uh, blast from the past policies on mandatory minimums. And so if uh, if you need if you need something to convince people to support that, uh, a healthy fear of crime is a good way to do that. But as you say, that's it doesn't really align with the facts. Uh, if you look at if you look at New York City, um, New York City's murder rate is actually lower than the national average, which is a, nothing less than a stellar achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not to say there aren't some cities that still have a real problem with crime. Chicago and Baltimore are some examples, but uh, across the country as a whole, uh, and and for the most part in big cities, crime remains pretty much at or near record lows. Um, so it, there. There are some pieces of data you can take out of context and say we should really be worried about what what crime is doing to these communities, but they don't they don't tell the whole picture. How much of this uh, aims is about? And this is uh, perhaps the most cynical question I could offer, <laughs> but um, I think we're we're sort of in in a period of time where uh, where it makes sense. Uh, how much of of this is about uh, removing voters? From the uh, from the voting pool, I know that you know there's about a million and a half felons and former felons in Florida alone uh, who have their rights taken away forever unless it's you know unless they're restored by one person, the governor in Florida. Right. Uh, it, it, so it's an incredibly cynical question, I, I realize, but uh, what were your thoughts on that? Let me just leave that for you. Yeah, I actually I hadn't put those two together, but I I, I wonder about that. Um, I think there's I think. What we're seeing is, uh, uh, as there are more people that, um, as there are more conservative voters, as there are more Republican voters who, who understand just how problematic the criminal justice system is as a whole, and part of that might be due to the uh, increasing use of opioids in some rural areas where, where heroin is really a problem. Mm-hmm. I think as people come to realize that when you treat problems like this, you should approach them as a public health problem, not a you know, lock them up and let's see how they handle uh, withdrawal behind bars sort of problem. Um, more people are starting to realize that this doesn't really work. So I, I'd, I'd like to think that the 
increasing uh, alliance between left and right on criminal justice reform is a growth of compassion. Um, and I, I'd like to think that the opposition is people who just don't get it yet and that we can hopefully convince them. So that, that's going to be my optimistic take. Yeah, I was going to say, very very generous of you, but I no, I, I appreciate that. Very quickly here, Ames, um, your, your, your report, A Federal Agenda to Reduce Mass Incarceration, details both legislative and executive actions you would like to see. Uh, yes. And I don't know if it's possible to summarize them in, in a minute or two here, but if you can tell us where we should be heading and and then we'll we'll finish up with uh, you know finding out what the possibilities of heading in that direction actually are. So legislatively and uh, at at an executive level, uh, what does need to happen now to move things back in the direction that many of us thought they were moving in previously? Right. Sure. Um, so our our sort of marquee proposal is one that we've we've talked about for a couple of years now, and right now we're going to try to. Um, push it more actively and see if we can get some traction in Congress, is this idea of a reverse crime bill, or we've called it a reverse mass incarceration act. It's, it's the idea that you'd, you'd set up funding to states that are willing to um, adopt policies that, will, that are proven to reduce their crime rates and reduce their rates of incarceration. Uh, and if they meet those goals, if they're able to, using local solutions, not solutions mandated by a D.C., mm-hmm. um, they'll get some funding to compensate them for the effort. And we think that could have a real profound effect because we know um, that the opposite set of incentives in the 94 crime bill uh, had the exact opposite results. So we hope to flip that equation is what the, the first proposal is. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one is, is sentencing reform. Uh, and we, we have a big proposal building off of one of my colleagues' reports that concluded that around 40% of the national prison population is behind bars without a public safety reason, which is a staggering amount. So we, we came up with uh, an idea for comprehensive, sen- comprehensive sentencing reform that would address that. But uh, we're, we're quite candid about that being a big ask from this Congress. Uh, we think a good first start would be to see if uh, Senators Grassley and Durbin and others are willing to reintroduce and advocate for the Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act as just a first step towards sentencing reform. Uh, the big one that I really want to see that I, I'm almost certain we're not going to see it from this president because uh, Sessions is also on the record talking about how he opposes this, mm-hmm. um, but a comprehensive effort to use the president's pardon power um, to correct some outdated prison sentences. Mm. Uh, there are people who are still who are still serving time in federal prison uh, under sentencing guidelines that Congress actually repealed in 2010. Mm. Uh, and a lot of those people have gotten out thanks to President Obama's commutation effort, um, giving them the benefit of these fairer laws that Congress passed in 2010. And Sessions actually supported those laws. But um, since he didn't support the President Obama's clemency effort to apply it backwards, um, we're we're not holding out hope on that one. Um, mm. But uh, lastly, another big legislative idea, and one that I think uh, left and right might actually unite behind, is there, there's a growing evidence that there are fewer police officers on the street than there were five years ago. And there's uh, growing evidence that uh, police actually do have a, a very important effect on reducing crime. Um, but there's also been concern over the last few years about how police are interacting with communities of color. So our mm. proposal would be um, that Congress appropriate a certain amount of money uh, to hire and train officers in the new t- sort of 21st century modern, modern version of policing, where they uh, integrate with their communities and learn to work with them to prevent not just uh, correct crime. Uh, I, think, I think there's a lot of rhetoric on the right about uh, the need to support law enforcement officers, and there's a lot of rhetoric on the left about how we need to 
uh, update the policing mission to 21st century standards. If we combine those two, um, maybe we could see some forward momentum on that. Well, perhaps with the uh, the president's continued beclowning of himself, more and more Republicans <laughs> will realize they need to they need to separate from him, from the administration, from Jeff Sessions, and maybe uh, work more with the Brennan Center to move a lot of these uh, policies forward that had been moving forward, at least to some extent, yeah. uh, on a bipartisan uh, basis. Before at least this new administration, uh, I'll point folks to your report, A Federal Agenda to Reduce Mass Incarceration. Ames Grauert, uh, co-author of that report uh, and from uh, Brennan Center's Justice Program. You can and should follow Ames on the Twitters at, <laughs> at AmesCG. That's A-M-E-S-C-G. And, of course, follow Brennan Center as well on the Twitters and at their website, BrennanCenter.org. Ames, really helpful uh, talking to you today. Hope to do it again soon in the future. A pleasure to speak with you. Please do. I'd be happy to be on again. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ames. Okay, a quick break, and we're back with our closing few minutes here as Donald Trump hits the road. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Nice, Desi. <laughs> welcome back. To, uh, welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Yes, Donald Trump is hitting the road. Uh, he will, as the New York Times reports, encounter dozens of world leaders during a nine-day, five-stop trip in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. He'll attend meetings with leaders from across the Muslim world before heading to Jerusalem. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, where he will then separately meet with uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his Palestinian counterpart, Mahmoud Abbas. At the Vatican, Mr. Trump will meet with Pope Francis. Recall that uh, on the campaign trail, Trump had called the pontiff disgraceful. Remember that? Oh, yeah. For having uh, questioned his faith in response to his plans for building a border wall. In Brussels... Trump will gather with other leaders of the 28 NATO countries, have lunch with the newly elected president of France, Emmanuel Macron. In Sicily, he will participate in the annual summit meeting of the of the G7, the group of seven powers, an event that typically also draws dozens of other leaders who show up for the uh, for meetings on the side. For, tr- for Mr. Trump, the New York Times reports, personal interaction and chemistry matter, so much so that Mr. Trump has provided, uh, I'm sorry, has proved willing to put aside long-held beliefs after talking with a foreign leader. King Abdullah flew to Washington without a, a White House invitation of Jordan uh, in the early days of the administration to urge him not to move the American embassy to Jerusalem in Israel, as he had promised to do during the campaign. After the king argued that it would provoke a potentially violent reaction in the Arab world, Trump shelved the move. Well, that's good. Another case in point, Trump's unlikely friendship uh, with uh, Xi Jinping of China. 
Although Trump spent years castigating the Chinese as the enemy, a get-together with Mr. Xi in Florida went so well a few weeks ago that he has heaped praise on the Chinese leader, calling him a very good man. Xi brought with him a theoretical 100-day plan to improve trade ties and a promise to increase pressure on North Korea, giving Trump something to, uh, to trumpet as an achievement after the meeting. And that was thanks to the plan that Xi had brought with him. The president has since dropped or moderated his complaints about Chinese currency and economic practices. So I'm going to choose to view this overseas trip for now, for the moment, as a good thing, as a positive thing. He may actually, you know, meet and talk to some of these leaders, find out they're not horrible, terrible people trying to destroy the world and the country and everything else and so maybe good things will come out of it because so far it has when he seems to when he meets people face to face he learns stuff yes he learns stuff um you know that's uh, the nice thing about going around fox news in order to find stuff out uh so i'm going to look at that as a good thing for the moment but um <laughs> elsewhere in the report here uh, foreign officials uh, meeting President Donald Trump during his overseas trip are being told to praise him for winning the Electoral College last year. Basically, what they're doing is they're childproofing the Middle East and Europe in anticipation of Donald Trump showing wow. up. Wow. Embassies and leaders who have met with Trump have been speaking among themselves and with other dignitaries about how to handle this new president. After four months of interactions between Trump and his counterparts, foreign officials and their Washington consultants say certain rules have emerged. Keep it short. No 30-minute monologues for a 30-second attention span, the Times reports. Do not assume he knows the history of the country or its major points of contention. Compliment him on his Electoral College victory, which is amazing. Contrast him favorably with President Obama. Yeah, you're, you're much better than, oh, we had so much trouble with Obama. We're so glad you're here, Mr. Trump. Uh, do not get hung up on whatever was said during the campaign about you and your country. Do not go in with a shopping list, but bring some sort of deal that he can then go out and, and call a victory. So that's what they're doing in preparation for Donald Trump Taking Europe, taking the Middle East. Uh, they, they Praise also him note, and give yeah, him toys. <laughs> they also note that, uh, exactly, Trump had unsuccessfully sought for the trip to be shortened from nine days to five days after expressing dread over its length, the Times had reported earlier this week. So that's all going to happen in the days ahead. What, as I say, could possibly go wrong? My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, today to Ames Grauert of NYU's Brennan Center for Justice. Uh, he was my guest today. Thank you, sir. And to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. My thanks, as ever, to those who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am just the Brad Blog. Find us, follow us, and share us far and wide. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.